Welcome to Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Prince, also known as Head Knight, and alongside me, none of the knights. Instead, <laughs> we have an honorary knight, one of our ghoulish knights, if you will. Let's give a nice warm welcome to fan and friend of the show, Philip Woodward. Welcome to the show, buddy. Hey, how's it going, Prince? Oh, pleasure to have you. Very excited to get started into this. This is a lot of fun. I know this was super last minute hitting you up, but thank you for being like, totally, let's do it. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. So. And and like I said, this is such a wild episode for me to be on because I'm literally yes. from the area where the movie is filmed. Like, that is not Not quite born there, but from age like one in something to age four and a half, I lived in the place where the, the movie was filmed. That is incredible. <laughs> that is absolutely incredible. Oh, man. But we are still a group of knights with an absolute love for film and a passion for horror. This is a podcast that takes a different horror film to break down, discuss the ultimate question, why horror? So hit the lights, sit back, and let the darkness envelope you. You can further support the show over on patreon.com slash goodnightlife. That's night with a what? Okay. <laughs> Yes! My pleasure to John. You have access to the show ad free and as early as Monday with a post show. If you don't have any bucks to toss, don't worry. An episode is released every Friday on most podcast services around the world. Now, the month that we are actually discussing this whole month, as y'all know, we are celebrating Stephen King's birthday this month and we're doing it for two whole months straight. With that, since it is two months straight, we got some kind of long things we needed to kind of cover for uh, our good old pal Stephen King over there with things like a TV miniseries. And no, we're not talking about it. That one's not going to be covered. Sorry, everybody. I know that one was requested. But instead, we are going to be doing Salem's Lot. And this will be part one because we are going to be doing a two-parter. Because three hours is a long time. <laughs> but this is part one. First and foremost, Philip, your thoughts? Uh, this movie was a lot slower than I remembered it. Um, I know, like, your, your memories kind of compress movies and the way that they feel over time. So going back and watching this movie was almost like re experiencing it for the first time. Um, every kind of all the buildup and things that happened in it really uh, built that tension for the, for the kind of ending sequence. But at the same time, it kind of fell flat. <laughs> like, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know if it was because the movie was too long. Um, but overall, I still really enjoyed it. It was a nice tread back through uh, familiar territory. And it was really cool to see kind of my hometown dressed up in different ways to make it look, uh, you know, like it's in Maine across the United States <laughs> instead That's of in so California. <laughs> that is so cool. I I honestly I very much enjoy this movie, but I'm with you. I like it's and it's weird to call it a movie, but it's a movie. It's a fucking movie. Yeah. But like it's it's interesting because I agree with you on it being super slow. Like we don't see Barlow until I think technically the second half of the movie. Like we, yeah. we don't see Barlow for a long time. Um and it's interesting because 
these miniseries are very much in the vein of like, this is how Stephen King wanted it. This is how he actually elaborated things in his book. So we go into very minutia details on characters that we don't give a fuck about, like Weasel, for example, well, who we never only, see again. Yeah, not only don't don't give a fuck about, but like the the guy who does the things to his wife, like I don't want to get into it yet because we're going to go over that in, in more right. detail. But like after that sequence, they just show him driving in a truck and then he and just he's gone for the rest of the movie. <laughs> that's it. Yeah, I like I assume they drove away because I for full disclaimer, everybody, I, I've never read this book, so I don't know if that's ever touched on again in the book or anything like that. But yeah, like they just kind of dipped and she was totally framing someone else. Yeah, <laughs> it's, it's gone. That's a that's an interesting plot point there. Um, but it it is a fascinating flick. Like I do think the glowing eyes is the fucking absolute top tier best. Like it's so cool. I, I was trying to figure out how they were doing it. I have to imagine it's some sort of like glass lens with a reflective like that's tape what it felt on like. it or something. Because it but totally yeah, didn't it, feel CG. No. Well, I mean, in 79, so probably wouldn't be. Right. Um, there's, I mean, and it didn't have that glow effect that like adding it in post would, like, you know, something like the lightning and Ghostbusters right. or, or something like that. It didn't right. have that feel to it. It looked like it was in camera real time. Yeah. Really it, cool effect. It looked awesome. And, and I can only assume that it was very similar to like uh, uh, Village of the Damned, like with those kids with the white eyes and things like that. So I, I thought this was great. Like, I, I yeah. thought that all of those effects were great. And this isn't my first time I've seen Salem's Lot. Like, I've seen Salem's Lot maybe three or four times other than this. Um, but like, I, I very much enjoy this movie. I did remember how slow it was. And I was just like, oh yeah, I forgot this movie kind of slogs. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, it's, it's still a lot of fun. Like it, it's, it's something that when it picks up and you start kind of getting that mystery aspect and, and really starting to hone in that this is like a mixture between a vampire and zombie story. It's so fucking cool. It definitely, yeah, it definitely has like a full arc to where it's yes. slow and it completely builds and builds and builds all the way up to the climax where it kind of like has the climax and then drops off into this kind of build again into right. an, a, a smaller climax that then finishes out the film. I agree. Yeah, no, I definitely agree. But I mean, I, I say let's definitely jump straight up into yeah. this because this is going to be, be an long. absolute blast to talk about, but it's going to take some time. <laughs> Absolutely. Salem's Lot, part one, directed by Toby Hooper, released November 17th and 24th in 1979 with a total runtime of three hours and four minutes. A budget of $4 million with a rating of 80% on Rotten Tomatoes, which is great. Like, honestly, yeah. I, I I don't know if you ever see the 2004 version. No, I actually did not know it existed until today when I was looking for the 1979 version. <laughs> yeah, it's not good. <laughs> but we open to Guatemala, church bells chiming a man, Ben, and a boy, Mark, are sitting silently in a church. They fill, they fill up two files, um, I, well, two vials, not files, of holy water while walking out, the, uh, while walking out their vial of water begins to glow. 
a little cheesy, but 79, what yeah. can you do? You know what, though? I did like the fact that they had the blue light on their faces oh my when they God, were that showing was it. Genius. I thought that was really cool because there's a lot of times where you'll get those early digital effects where they're like lightsabers are a great example where there's no light cast right. on the person's face. Exactly. So I thought that was a neat touch. Yeah, that was a great touch. Ben claims that another one has found them, Mark suggesting that they go further. Ben shakes his head, telling him not yet. Uh, the glow disappears. Fade to a house that glows from the moonlight, showcasing our title card as a transition in today. This is fucking let's go moment right here. Yeah. Like, this looks so good. Like, it, it, it's the way the Salem was a lot like kind of plots in, kind of like, like, it feels like army text. Yeah. In a way, but like it just it, it it works. It just fucking works. Yeah, and the way they animated it to like disappear was really cool too. Yes, yes, definitely agree. Ben pulls up to the house two years prior in Salem's Lot, Maine, which we definitely know is now California. So surprise everybody! Yeah, it's, a, it's a road <laughs> called Blue Slide that actually heads out of uh, the city of Ferndale. That is so interesting. <laughs> okay, so and, and you said this is t- technically because I, I asked you how far away you are from San Francisco, so, and you said about four hours. So yep. this is about four hours away from San Francisco. So yep. this means I need to take a trip up there. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. If you ever want a tour, let me know. Oh my god, is the house real? Uh, yes and no. Um, okay, I don't know if the house was torn down and rebuilt or if they built additions onto it. That house is in that location, but it looks completely different from the movie version. But not being as that it dark was and looming. 42 years ago, I'm not sure if it was uh, <laughs> torn down and rebuilt or remodeled. That's completely fair. He gets out of the car in awe at the looming house, walking closer to it, a car parked in the driveway. He watches as a man in a suit named Straker comes out of the house. He stops on... He's, Oh, he stops on the steps noticing Ben, but he continues inside his car. Ben sweats profusely as, as Straker passes him by. Ben drives into Salem's lot. And this is super interesting that like he's already just like sweating and he's just like, what the fuck is going on with me? Like, why am I sweating? Why am I nervous? Like, yeah. what is it? What is it about this place? Um, and this is before we know Ben's past with this place as well, which is also very warranted. He's searching for something, passing up Mark standing outside an oddity shop. Cut to Straker picking up some antiques um, out of barrels that say handle with care. Meanwhile, Ben pulls up to the shop, Barlow Straker fine antiques. He closes his door, Straker watching him walk across the street to Crockett's uh, realty. He walks inside, skipping the, skipping the woman at the front desk to speak to Larry Crockett about wanting to rent. Crockett asks for how long, Ben thinking six months. He asks Ben a list of questions but can't think of anything that will be available he asked crockett about the house up on the hill which is so interesting like why would you ask him that when you literally saw somebody leaving out of that yeah you're just but it, like it apparently hadn't been purchased so it was kind of right. weird that he was staying up there i That's also true. think the in the sexism in this movie is very interesting too i agree yeah yeah he, he like literally just completely just beelines it straight to crockett yeah, there's another c- uh, scene later on that we'll get to that has some interesting like male-female dynamics too. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, the, they definitely do not like the opposite sex in this movie, that's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> Crockett, knowing that that uh, to be the Marston house, the woman Bonnie listens eagerly to the conversation. Ben asks if the house is for sale or rent. Crockett shares that it's sold. 
telling him that uh, telling him to try Eva Miller's boarding house. Bonnie chiming in that it's nice. He tells Ben, and he completely just like ignores her. Just 100%. no recollection to her at all. He tells Ben what street is, uh, what street is it on. Um, and is about to show him directions, but he claims that he already remembers and abruptly leaves, um, thanking them. It, he totally was fucking rude, first of all. Like, yeah. I, I, I did not, every time I watch this movie, I fucking hate Ben. Like, I, I, I hate him <laughs> in the beginning of this movie. And then towards, I start like feeling empathy towards the second half of this, uh, movie, which is interesting. But at the same time, I was just like, I still, kind of don't give a shit about you like i care about mark more than anybody in this whole story yeah so i i definitely feel like he's a creeper too and we're gonna get to that scene oh in my a second. god yes but yeah definitely like he at first you're like wait is that the guy from the opening like it looks right. like him right but he just doesn't feel like that same person and we figure out why but yeah it's very right. interesting Absolutely. And plus he had like, like stubble and like five o'clock right. shadow in the first <laughs> opening scene. He's just like com- completely clean shaven. They watch him, they watch him through the window as he walks to his car. Crockett speaking on the Marston's house being vacant for over 20 years while he touches Bonnie's shoulder. She tells him that, that Cully is going to, to Portland tomorrow while smiling at him. And you're just like, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, yeah. I see these two. My exact note was that smirk. Dude is banging his secretary. <laughs> <laughs> that he is, and she was quick with it. Stricker is, t- is taking out more antiques, looking out at Ben starting his car and driving off. Crockett goes inside Stricker's antique shop. Stricker coming from uh, coming from the back, greeting him. Crockett compliments his cleanup, then asks about Barlow, and everybody was just so fucking fascinated with Barlow. Right. It was just yeah. like, like I get I guess, it. Like y'all are a small town and shit, but like get off these people's like business. <laughs> well, and I, I think it's because he's the business owner, and no one's right. met the business owners. So they're all like, "So when's the business owner going to be here?" Yeah, and it's just like, I, if it were me, I would be like, "Well, I'm also the business owner. Like you see my name on it too." So like, right? Fuck y'all. Like show me some fucking respect. <laughs> Damn. <Nope. laughs> and you're just like, nah, we want Barlow. It's like, my name is first, motherfuckers. <laughs> Stricker tells him that, that he will soon arrive, Crockett smiling that a lot of people have been um, waiting. Str- and it's just, why? <laughs> Stricker, shares, Stricker shares that Barlow is worth the wait, especially for him, sharing that he's been helpful getting them getting them a house in store. Back to back with Ben setting up th- setting up blah, setting up his things inside his new room, Eva asking if he if he's a writer. He answers he, he answers her question, but she continues asking more about his writing as he continues to not be interested in speaking with her. She's like, bro, she just housed you. Yeah. Show some a little bit of interest. Like, come on. He asks about food. She shares that the kitchen is open to all, then asks if he uh, if he works at night. Taking off his jacket, rushing out of his room, letting her know that he won't he won't work too late. And at first, like me being the person who's not born in 1970s, I was thinking like, <laughs> oh, like why does it matter if he works late? Like he's in his room and he's yeah. probably going to be really quiet. And I'm just like, oh yeah, you have a typewriter. Like you're going to be <laughs> all night and like, yeah, turn that shit off. Like stop. Now, I, I will say that the, 
I don't know how big this building is supposed to be within the limits of the movie, but the house itself in real life is pretty big. So I'm oh, pretty really? sure those clickety clackety keys wouldn't bother anybody. Yeah, You're it's like a right. mini hotel. There's there's a bunch of, of rooms on the second floor that people can stay in, and the bottom has like a kitchen, and it's basically like a small house on the bottom. So that is so interesting that like this is legit filmed on location. Yeah, that is so cool. <laughs> Holy shit. Before she leaves out of the room, she asks one last question as to why he came to Salem's Lot. Uh, I do have a question, but I want to save it a little bit for later about the town. Okay. Uh, but I'll, I'll save it for more towards the end of the show. Yeah. Um, letting her know that this, uh, that strangers don't come there around this time, he tells her that he's not a stranger. Cutting or Cut to him walking to, in the park, spotting a woman drawing with his uh, with his book face down on the ground. He comes up to her, joking, jokingly telling her that that's no way to leave a book as he picks it up. The woman, Susan, asking if, if it's him on the back cover. He holds it up to receive some of that clout. <laughs> Come on. Are you serious? This is this guy. Yeah, this, this is guy's like classic male predatory wielding power right now. 100%. He's just like, uh, yeah, I'm the author of this book. What's <laughs> up, girl? Like, <laughs> yeah, you like me? I thought so. And she's like, yeah, your book sucks. No, like, <laughs> I'm only this far into it. <laughs> That's why I started drawing. Because <laughs> your book fucking lame. Whatever, you don't have to read it. <laughs> He asks if he can sit down. She allows him to do so. Then asks why he called called his book Air Dancer. Then asks if she actually read the book, and Susan tells him that she had it, <laughs> chuckling that she has that she was just getting into it. He cuts her off that she got bored, but she claims that she didn't. Um, yeah, you did, and that she wanted to finish her drawing first. I'm just now imagining her picking up the book and just like reading the first line, and she's like, "Oh shit, my drawing." <laughs> Letting him know that she's going to read it, he matter-of-factly tells tells her that she doesn't have excuse me that she doesn't have to have to while asking for her name. She introduces herself, sharing that she te- that she teaches art at Holly Elementary School. Con- continuing that her father is the doctor of the town, then letting him know that the reason she took his book out of the library is because she read his other one. He asked for the for the title, but she can't remember. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was her just trying to spit game back. <laughs> then asked her out for dinner. Um, now this is interesting to me. If he's like been in this town for a little bit, I know he hasn't been there. Uh, he left when he was ten. Is what we get clarification right. on later. But he had to have known who her father was, right? Like her father I, was. That's probably one of the things I find the most strange about this entire movie is how nobody no knows who he is. <laughs> It's just like, like how, how does nobody know him in this town? Like he's not like a childhood, like especially yeah. Eva. Like Eva looks like she's been living there since she was like five. Yeah, like, they look like they could be the same age almost. Yeah, absolutely. That and was then, another yeah. thing that was very weird. Like she looked way younger than he did. Yeah, <laughs> and then Jason. Jason was like, I I guess I remember you. <laughs> like later. <laughs> it's just like no one in this town knew who this guy was, and I'm. I, I like the fact that they kind of bring this up with, with the cop um, or the constable when he's like, oh, we'll get to it. Yeah, she we'll, dro- we'll get there. Yeah, she drops I have, his, I have thoughts, but we'll get there. Yeah, definitely have thoughts. It, everybody, I don't want you guys to get the wrong idea. Like, we love this movie. Yeah, 100%. It's just, it's just 
very easy to bag on. <laughs> she drops her smile, him thinking that she has a boyfriend. Susan reminds him that his biography says that he's married with no children, asking him the question if that's if that's still the case. Oh, by the way, everybody, quick uh, disclaimer, this episode is not going to have um, movie facts at the end of it. We're going to do that in part two. So just wanted to give you a quick little disclaimer on that. Uh, ben shares that his wife died and that he still he still doesn't have kids, but he, he has some good and bad memories. He turns the attention back to the dinner question, and she would love to. Ben is standing outside the Marston house at night, staring at the illuminated window above. Fucking weirdo. <laughs> <laughs> he turns around to Straker standing right behind him and I'm like, dude Straker is so intimidating yeah like he's very intimidating he's like the creepy old man who who lives in the house alone like he yeah. like, He's very intimidating. They don't say anything to each other right away, Stricker looking at the window above, then telling him, quote-unquote, good evening, before walking down the dank road. He stares at Straker for a moment, watching him go inside the house. He puts on his glasses, Straker turning on the light and coming back outside to stare down at him before closing the door. Ben is driving through the town, passing by the sheriff who stops, oops, excuse me, the constable who stops his car to watch him. Bonnie and Crockett are coming out of the office, sharing their farewells she and this is once again like the flirtatious vibes that they have are so weird like they even seem like they could be married it's a very Uh odd flirtatious vibe they got going on she tells him that she will uh see him tomorrow um and tomorrow night crockett asks um asks if she's sure she convinces him that straker will need to make both a delivery and pickup she sends her good nights before they both leave a drinking man um gordon weasel phillips is is not our philip our phillips is a very very good man he's not named weasel um, is watching them uh, his attention grabbed by the constable per- by constable perkins sternly asking what's he doing he believes that weasel is spying but he denies um perkins t- uh takes his drink sniffing it and closing the cap before asking about ben weasel shares that he lives right down the hall perkins demands him to keep his keep his eye on him weasel's curious what he's done the constable moving in close to tell him that he murdered 18 people and like weasel is like fuck terrified he's yeah. like oh my god like oh holy shit i'm living i'm living right next to this guy then yeah, his he jokes, eyes in this scene yeah it's fantastic like he's just like oh my god it, and this guy's great like i like i yeah. really really like him uh i forgot what his actual name is but he's he's fantastic like he, he's was, really really good i will say i definitely noticed that he wasn't in the rest of the film because yeah. he was such a great character cameo there for just a minute Yes, absolutely. His name's Elijah Cook Jr. And he, he and the reason why I remember him, he was in Rosemary's Baby. He was Mr. Nicholas. And that's why I remember him. Mm. I was like, okay, yes, that makes that's total funny. sense. Um he's great. Uh, he was at, he was very pleasant in this movie for me. Um th- uh, then he jokes um that it is everyone who kept asking, quote unquote, what's he done? <laughs> <laughs> he hands Weasel's drink back, laughing as he walks away. Ben is driving past the cemetery. Mike watches as his dog, Faithful, barks as he passes by. Gut to Bonnie coming home to, to her husband, Cully, um, crushes beers as he washes TV. What a what a what a man! <laughs> yeah, I my instant feeling was like, is this guy abusive to her? Like, it was it was bad. It definitely gave off those vibes for sure that yeah. he probably has a very abusive relationship towards her um which 
he 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 just looks like, and obviously don't judge a book by its cover, but for this characterization, he looks like a person who would beat his wife. Like he he looks like he he looks like the guy who would call a tank top a wife beater. It, it would like be he the, looks like yeah, that guy. The way they presented him, not necessarily the way he looked, but the way right. they presented him, definitely Absolutely. had that that vibe. Yeah, with the crushing of the can, not really saying anything to his wife pretty much expecting her to kiss him as soon and as she comes into beer. the house and give him another beer. Exactly. <laughs> so like it, it kind of very much felt like this whole persona that he was giving off was definitely to be like, yeah, no, this is, this is my, my chick. This is my house. And you know, you, you're going to run by my rules. And that's how, how Cully kind of felt. Uh, she kisses him, asking him if he would like to stay home tonight. He agrees. She tells him not to drink because she wants to have some fun tonight. As she is going to get something out of the freezer, he calls her back to get him a beer. Lovely. Yeah. Now, it's it's interesting that this is how she butters him up as well to make it feel like what she's also doing for adultery is nothing. Like, it's just, you know, I'm, I'm giving you your cake and you're able to eat it too. And so mm-hmm. I can have my fun or whatever uh for tomorrow night or whatever so super interesting it's it's honestly it's it's an interesting plan because most relationships when someone does that they it's because they're not satisfied in some re- way or another right but to go along with that they're usually not having like a sexual interaction so exactly. it's really interesting that she kind of d- goes further with that and is like no let's do that so he doesn't suspect anything Right. Yeah. And, and she definitely played her cards in, in a way to really seem like nothing's going on. I'm the perfect wife. You got the perfect life and things yep. like that. So uh, Ben is eating dinner with Susan and her parents, Bill and Anne. And by him taking her out to dinner, that completely caught me off guard. He was just <laughs> like having dinner with your parents first, first date. Yeah. Lovely. Yeah, meeting the parents on the first date? Question mark. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I also have. Am I crazy, or are her father and her and the protagonist the same age? <laughs> oh my god, you're not crazy. They are literally the same age. Bill, uh, they look like they could be brothers. Right. Bill asks about him staying at Eva's, sharing stories of her past and her looks. Anne and Susan are cleaning up the tables, joking about men. It's just like, okay, it. it Who's the fucking seventies man? This yeah. is just a, a totally different time, indeed. The way the way that they just like picked up the plates when everyone was done eating and just like walked them into the kitchen and started yeah. cleaning them immediately. I was, that's where I was like, wow! Literally allowing her husband to talk about another woman, yeah, like in a very promiscuous fashion in front of her, and she's like, men, like. <laughs> Anne offers him coffee. They leave the room, Bill sharing that the, um, that uh, Eva was married to Weasel, making fun of him, adding that they got divorced, but he's still living there. Susan and her mom are in the kitchen. She asks her daughter what he uh, what his book is about. She shares it is about two men, and shocked at it being, quote-unquote, one of those books. Yeah. Yeah. Some homophobia there, for sure. Yep, definitely. Cut to Weasel trying to get a paper out of the typewriter from Ben's room. Eva coming into the room, slapping him, wondering what he's doing in there. She takes the paper. He tells her that it's nothing on it, and um, it's just a paper. She's intrigued. Weasel continues picking up Ben's paper, finding some scribbles, trying to read it. He is about to say something about a boy. She cuts him off for reading the manuscript from the typewriter. Quote, about a boy in a house. The, the house was a monument to evil living or, excuse me. The mo- the house was a monument to evil sitting there all these years holding the essence of evil in its smoldering bones. End quote. 
fucking poetic. Like yeah, this really is cool. this is really really great, and this feels like this is something written by Stephen King. Like that that yeah. felt really really good to to hear. Weasel wonders if he is talking about the Marston house, but the sentence ends. Eva repeats the sentence as they both wander. Ben and Susan leave her her parents' house, but uh, Ben thanking them for for the dinner. She uh, sighs that they liked him. Ben thinking that her father maybe did. She lets him know that her mom doesn't like anyone except for Ned Tibbetts. He wonders who that is. Uh, Susan letting him know um, it is someone th- it is someone that she's been seeing. At least she was honest. Yeah. Asking if it had or have, she claims that it's a little bit of both as she scoots in the uh, passenger seat. Meanwhile, Anne and Bill are inside. Anne wondering that Ben's real reason what what Ben's real reasons are to be in Salem's lot. Bill letting her know that he's writing a book, but he didn't say he didn't say what it was. Ben asks for her to tell her about about Ned. She smiles, correcting his name, because um, I think he like said his last name wrong or something like that. Um, Ben changing the question of what she didn't, of what she uh, did after college. Susan shares that she was in New York working at an aid agency. Um, agency, um, and she loved it. But the agency lost an account, and shortly afterwards, she was looking for a job. Then she had to move back home. Been um, completing that she had to come back home. She asks. She asks how long since his wife passed. He shares two years. She she wonders if that's what he's writing about. He tells her that he's actually writing about the Marston House, but she doesn't understand why. Ben asks where they are going. She lists off a few locations. He asked. He asked her where would she like to go, and she chooses the lake. Great choice. Is there an actual lake there? Um, no, not really. So that must be a different uh, location. location. There's, there's like a lagoon, but it's like north. So I'm not sure where that part of the movie was filmed. Hmm. Fair enough, because I, I was definitely wondering like if this location actually had a lake, because the way the town is set up, it looks like it wouldn't. No, yeah, it definitely does not. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, it looks like it wouldn't have a lake. So it's just, it was interesting that the lake was actually present in this. They are sitting next to, to the lake. Susan asks if he's uncomfortable with her. He asks if he should be. She blames this on a habit of asking questions. He jokes that he has a habit of evading them. <laughs> Sounds like a match made in heaven. They <laughs> laugh as she shares uh, that she likes him, joking that, Joking that her being a modern, aggressive female, um, partially liberated, that states her feelings. And I thought that was great. I thought yeah. that was really fantastic to let, let him know, like, like, yo, I'm going to be me. I'm going to ask these questions no matter what. So either answer them or get the step in my dude. Like, <laughs> yeah, it definitely felt nice against the scene we just saw where it was yes. like, oh, was she just acting like that because she was in the house with her parents and she didn't want to like rile them up in any way. Right. Because like, I mean, I don't know if Ben was seen the type to do this, but like, I feel like if he would have had dinner at um, his house or something like that, or or at Eva's place or whatever, he probably would have taken the dishes himself because it's his place or something. And and I, I do feel like she definitely was more so looking out like, this is what my mom does. Therefore, right. I'm going to kind of follow suit and be quote unquote respectful. Uh, asking if, if, um, if that makes him uncomfortable, he jokes that it makes him feel good. She asks how long is he staying for? He shares that he, uh, until he finishes with his book. Susan flirtatiously asks if he's a slow writer, hoping that it, um, it is a long book. Then they kiss. <laughs> and I was like, 
not gonna lie, that was fly as fuck. Like yeah. she, like the way she did that was so damn smooth, and I was just like, that was dope. Good on you. <laughs> Got to Ben going through some of his his crumble pages before beginning to type again. He looks out of the window at the Marston house, noticing Straker leaving the house. Straker looks around a moment before getting into his his car and driving off. While his while he's driving, he looks behind himself dr- uh, before driving slightly faster. Cut to Crockett Realty. Cro- uh, Crocker or Crockett, not Crocker, uh, answering the phone as Bonnie makes him uh, some some coffee. He tells her he tells the man on the phone that he will be right there, grabbing his coat, letting Bonnie know that he'll be right back. She acknowledges, calling him honey. He comments for her to stop calling him that because someday they um she will forget and she does she does it again, laughing that oops I forgot. <laughs> is, I have a question though is is that really that weird? I have like women that are older that call me honey or darling all the time and they don't know me yeah. at all. Like I just walk into a building and they're like, Oh, hi honey. How are you doing today? Right. Yeah. So. And, and, and I, I would, I was thinking the same thing. Like it didn't even feel like it was a couple's thing when she said it, like it, right. it felt very normal. Like it felt, it felt, yeah, it just felt normal. Um, but Maybe depending off the time of like it being in the seventies, and she right. ca- also calls her husband "honey." Like that is something that I do find to be something a little bit more personable. Uh, to where I call my wife "love," and I also call my daughter "love." So, like yeah. for me, I wouldn't call like another person like "oh, hey, love." And and I know people who do that. Like I know people who who yeah, actually one hundred percent do that as well. But I wouldn't do that because that is such. That is such a uh, personal thing for my wife and my daughter. So it, yeah, uh, maybe for it's me, just that way for her, sure. That makes yeah, sense. and that's that's how I kind of visualized it. And obviously, you can tell that Crockett is very scared of Cully. Like he, well, <laughs> I was, I was, I'm using very loosely because <laughs> he still is going with this shit. So he's not that scared of him, but he's, he's definitely a little scared of him, I guess. He weaves out of the office, weasel shouting, quote unquote, getting warmer as he <laughs> walks across the street to the antique shop. Inside the shop, Straker uh, covers a few antiques asking Crockett for his assistance. I would have loved for Straker, if I wanted Weasel to be more in this movie, I would have loved for Straker to have used Weasel to his advantage to kind of rile up more of the people to kind of have these attacks happen later in the film. But he didn't, so it's fine. Weasel just falls off the face of the earth. (laughs) He asked for Crockett to to have his truck at the Portland docks at 7 p.m. sharp at the Custom Wharf. Uh, custom house wharf. Crockett writes it down, repeating the information back. Straker continues that two movers is enough um, and that the sideboard, quote unquote, should be taken to the house. Um, instructing his movers to put it down in the cellar, sharing how they can uh, get in through the outside bulkhead. Crockett asks if he'll be there, but he won't. He'll be in Boston tomorrow. He asks for four stout padlocks, and the movers will leave the keys on the basement table, instructing them to padlock the bulkhead front door and shed door, which they're just like, fuck that. (laughs) He confirms this with Crockett, thanking him and pleased to always call on him. Crockett is about to leave, but asks about Barlow, Straker letting him know that he'll be able to meet him very soon. It's just like, Straker, you get kind of see it on Straker's face, too. It's just like, 
fuck you dude i'm here yeah. like <laughs> like yo why is it always barlow <laughs> he leaves a straker nervously sitting down um and i actually love the visual of the skull like sitting right next to him and how this transitions into mark being super into the macabre cut to mark practicing for a play about the history of salem's lot with the, with his peers this is super fascinating. He's going over the history of like how it was yeah. called Jerusalem, Jerusalem's Lot and how, why they changed it and shortened it to hyphenate to Salem's Lot. Really fucking great stuff here. Really, really cool. Um, ben watches taking a seat next to Jason Burke, who's the only fucking person who remembers him in this town. And he's just I, like, does he and it's just like, and it's just like a little bit. And I have a theory that Ben is actually not from here. Like I, I just I that's my theory. Like I truly deeply think that he's not from here. I think he visited when his aunt used to work there. Uh, and I think that's it. Like I do yeah, not he's think he's actually the, from the here. Scary townhouse and right. got scared out of his mind and then left again. This <laughs> is like dude, I mean, what? It makes way more sense to me. Exactly. Like this is, <laughs> it makes no sense as to why no one in this fucking town knows who you are. He gets his attention asking if the kids still run the pageant. Jason smiles that they um that he helps a little, then introduces himself, wondering if he remembers him. Jason excitedly exclaimed that he does, thinks he remembers him, adding yeah. that he read his books while shaking his hand. Ben letting him know that uh, it was because of him to pursue it. Jason wants to catch up, asking him to meet him. Uh, meet with him later that night. Cuts to Mike working in the cemetery. Cully honking his horn to get his attention. Cully offers him 50 bucks to him um, to move something, but he won't be able to help him. It's so interesting. He's like, yeah, I'll give you 50 bucks, but you gotta split it with the second person you get. <laughs> Letting Mike know that he has something else planned for tonight. Meanwhile, Ned is creeping on Susan as Ben uh, as Ben comes up to her jokingly he notices ned apologizing and letting him letting her know that he came uh came by for jason and he told him to wait around he tells he tells her that he won't he won't do it again she asks for him to wait for her there so she can go up to ned she approaches ned um he tells her um to get in and she tells him no he reminds her that she used to love him. She rebuttals on that being a long time ago. And by a long time ago, she's like, that was, that was a million years ago or a hundred years ago <laughs> or something like that. Um, he looks at Ben, Susan commenting that he has nothing to do with him. She nods knowing that she was doing something with him at, at the lake um, the prior night. Ben moves closer, Ned getting in his van and speeding off. And he's like all butter. He's like, me, me, yeah. <laughs> like, Ben grabs his books and walks her home. Bonnie and her husband, Cully, are kissing. She asks, uh, she asks when he will be back home. He tells her that he'll be back around midnight or after, joking toward, uh, toward Crockett to keep away from her. Crockett joking <laughs> back, he leaves He leaves out, Bonnie looking out of the window as Crockett suspiciously stares at her. She claims he was kidding, but he doesn't believe her. And I would have been like, yeah, nah, this ain't happening. Like, <laughs> like your husband is fucking crazy. I'm not... You can, not. You can tell that it stuck with him too when she had yes. to like call him and convince him to come over. Right. <laughs> like he was just like, yeah, I'm not doing this. Cully is running to his truck. Parkett's telling him to not leave his truck double parked. Cully comments that he's going to Portland for a pickup for Straker at the Custom Wharf. Parkins asks if he knows what it is, but he assumes that it's just more antiques. Not understanding why someone would like to open an antique shop in their town. Parkin acknowledges commenting about his truck being parked there again. Straker comes 
comes out of his shop watching Cully's uh, truck pass him by. Mike locks Faithful behind the gate in the cemetery, letting him know that he'll be right back as he barks. Ned is waiting there with him, Cully handing him the keys and paper for the truck. He instructs them to leave the truck in the morning and he'll just pick it up later. They leave, Cully annoyed by the barking dog, yelling for him to shut up as he throws a beer can at him. Fucking got, fucking like die, dude. Like, are you serious? What did that, come on, stop. Like, that's not even your dog, it's your friend's dog. And like, even if it was your dog, you're a fucking asshole. Like, come on, don't hit that dog. I find it really interesting. Oh, sorry. No, please, Uh, go ahead. I find it really interesting that there's a ton of uh, questionable things that happen within this movie that if the supernatural stuff didn't start picking up, could have been blamed on other people in the movie. Like they, yes. if the cops had gotten involved and done an investigation, like he totally would have been taken away for, you know, animal cruelty and you know, oh, yeah. the other stuff that ends up happening. But it's just interesting. Absolutely. Yeah. And I agree with you like this. It, it, in all honesty, like the way that this movie goes, it, it technically doesn't even really truly need that many supernatural elements into it. Like it, it's, it was a nice homage to like some Nosferatu type style stuff, but still it, it, it just, I would have been completely fine if this was like a murder mystery. Yeah. Um, but I mean, we know that's not how Stephen nope. King rolls. <laughs> <laughs> Ned and Mike are driving down the road, Ned wondering why they are the ones doing this and not Cully. Mike sharing that he wants Bonnie to think that he's going to Portland, claiming that Crockett is the one uh, that set, set up the trip. Ned doesn't understand why. Mike smiling at him as and he puts two and two together. They laugh, wondering what Cully is going to do. Mike returns the question back to him if he had a 12-gauge um, sitting in his garage, what would he do? Fair question. <laughs> but I don't know if I want to take it to that extreme. But hey, got to Ben walking into a bar, greeting Jason and ordering a drink. Them joking as he returns to the native. Um, back. Oh, oh, yeah. Return of the native when everyone's just like, who? Like, what the fuck? <laughs> what the fuck is this? Back with Cully walking the grounds, faithful growling, and, and then howls with a whine. Cully immediately leaves. We slowly pan to the dog, to the dog being buried. Um, excuse me, to the to the now dead do- oh my gosh we'd slowly pan to the dog now being dead Mike and Ned are moving moving the heavy crate onto the truck complaining about it um, being a sideboard Ned comments about the cr- about the crate feeling extremely co- cold and that he doesn't like it calling it strange Mike annoyed asks if he wants to pry it open Ned actually considers it he tells <laughs> Ned no and they pack it up and go and go on their way inside the truck Ned comments on it being cold and um, cold in there as well, Mike thinking that it shouldn't be since it's a, a warm night. He tells Ned to turn on the heater. He does, looking back at the cra- at the creaking crate moving towards him. Uh, he tells Mike that it's moving. They both look back, almost crashing into an oncoming car. Mike blames the movement on the truck, Ned demanding him to stop the truck so they uh, can open it. Mike tells him no, and for them to uh, just get the delivery um, over, uh, just to get the delivery over with. Cully is outside his house watching his wife in a skippy outfit calling Crockett um, to come over. On the phone, she disagrees on them going to the mo- to a motel, seductively saying that she wants him to... Um, she wants him there in her own bed. And he totally, once again, like you're right, he, he just, he had this, this thing kind of in his chest where he's like, fuck, I don't, 
I don't have a good feeling about You're this. Right. <laughs> you should have stuck to your gut. <laughs> she demands she demands him to get there as she continues being flirtatious over the phone. Cut to Mark practicing his lines in his room. Um, his mom, June, comes into the room to tell him to be quiet so uh, so his dad, Ted, can focus on his taxes. What, what a fucking old person thing to say. Yeah. Just like... <laughs> Quiet down. Your dad's working on his taxes. Just like, how much do you need to focus right. <laughs> on your taxes? He acknowledges sharing that his friends, Danny and Ralphie, um, are coming over to rehearse. I mean, granted, yeah, you probably had, you had to do your taxes by hand back then, but still. Yeah, with a manual like, calculator or, or something. Right. But, it's probably I a mean, fucking crank calculator knowing his dad. It's, it's not like he's <laughs> yelling, though. No. I don't know. I just like y'all got paper thin walls. I like how he just like kind of goes back to doing it the exact same yeah. like pitch and everything. Like fuck you, dad. She agrees as long as they don't disturb his dad. She closes the door behind him as he continues his lines loud as fuck. Yeah. Ben and Jason are speaking about Mark while they take a message from our sponsors. And we're back because Mark is actually writing and acting in the pageant just as loud as Ben was before, claiming that he's talented in both. Ben is excited for another writer. Jason being um, happy and uh, happy uh, and having the opportunity to allow two writers to succeed under his education. <laughs> it only took <laughs> 50 years. Uh, he asked about why Mars's house, knowing about knowing that he added the, um, that in his pageant as well. Ben thinks it is possible because his aunt worked there. Jason asked if she, if she shared any stories, but she didn't. He asked if if she ever spoke about um, Hubie Marston, uh, but she didn't yet. She understood that the house has a reputation for being haunted. He continues that he uh, that he's been up there and as a dare when he was a child, claiming that he uh, he was afraid, but snuck around and got inside. He tells him that he saw ghosts, quote unquote, everything. Uh, or quote ghost everything every sound and every shadow end quote but he's not too sure what he actually saw thinking that he saw he thinking that he saw um hubie hanging up hanging by his neck calling the sight ghastly but he opened his eyes and looked at him wow now i wanted to see this story so fucking bad yeah that the sounds- imagery described is is really crazy Oh my god, it sounds incredible. Like that's that's something that definitely was something on my mind where it's just like I need to see a visual of this. Like that yeah. sounds great. That sounds fantastic. He runs as fast as he could, then asking Jason if he be- if he believes that a thing can be inherently evil. Jason figures that he notices trees that look like tortured souls. Men signals the house house the house um housing evil inside. Um I don't know why I wrote that way, but anyway, uh, he adds that the man um, that built the house, Joshua Vaughn, killed his wife and a servant, then hanged himself in a closet. Continuing that Hubie's sister and wife died mysteriously. Um, the rumors, the rumors being from poison. Now it's interesting that they don't call this the Vaughn House; they call it the Marston House Marston after house, Hubie yeah. Marston when he's the second inhabitant, technically. But 
Hey, whatever. <laughs> then Hubie came there and the boys start um started to disappear, folks suspecting Hubie but never proved. Claiming that they know they know uh, that they now have Straker, Jason chiming in um Barlow as well. Ben continues dominating the conversation, reminding him that nobody has ever seen him. He thinks he thinks that um an evil house attracts evil men. Jason challenges the question, Ben asking why was he attracted to it? Yeah, Ben. You fucking weirdo! Why are you attracted to it? Like, why? Why are you back here? Like, what? Like, what are you doing? I do like that introspection he has there, though, where he yes. does like, wait, why am I attracted to it? Exactly, and, and it's interesting because I still have that question. Like, why? Why is he the person who is attracted to this place? So it's super interesting. Cut to Ned and Mike. Ned continuing to watch the crate get closer and closer to him. He tells Mike that it's moving, yelling for him to look at it. Mike tells him to shut up because they're they're almost there. <laughs> Mark and his friends, uh, the Glick brothers, asking about the ghoulish mass. Mark casually explains what it is. Danny asking why he's so into it, and Mark just um just is just them thinking that it's weird, and <laughs> it's just like. This is and this is great. I love that this was actually added because it shows kind of a certain gravitas of how horror fans are treated in a yeah. way, and, and people who like the macabre or are fascinated by the macabre and things like that. Like it's it's so interesting, and, and it's a reason why a lot of uh, people who like horror may not stick with it because their circle or something aren't fans of it, and it's just like you know I have no one else to kind of share this with. But yeah, and that's any of those uh, niche things like comic books before they became this gigantic mainstream. Yes, uh, it was another thing that was treated like that when you had like your your statues or figures or you know mm-hmm. uh, comics and posters and stuff. So very similar. But I loved his room. His room was so cool. His room was fucking awesome, and and I'm glad Mark was just like fuck y'all. I don't care. You know, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ted comes into his room, letting them know that they know that um their mom wants them home. They grab their things, asking if if they know their lines. Okay, Mark says almost. Danny invites. He's like almost, but you guys still suck. Danny invites uh, him to their house tomorrow to finish rehearsing. They leave. His dad asking when is he going to outgrow the macabre. Mark grabs the the toy on his bed, guesses that he he will soon, then tells his dad that he, uh, that he has to fix a fix a toy to get him to leave. Ned and Mike stop the truck to move the box out. Ned touches the box exclaiming that it's freezing, calling it unnatural. Mike tells him that uh, that they have to get it out and get it down. With their uh, with their might, they slide the box toward the edge of the truck, opening the um, basement doors. The Glick brothers are walking in the damp woods back home. Ralphie's startled by an owl hooting. Daniel tries to calm him down, letting him know that this is a shortcut through the woods, adding that they see lights to Jordan Avenue from there. Ralphie can't, and Danny just says, fuck it, and leaves his brother. (laughs) He shouts for Danny to wait for him, the area becoming extremely windy. This is great. I love how, like, wind is the presence of Straker. That is so fucking cool to me. Like I I, I I love that. That I, I, I like my my brain was like, how big is this fan blowing this air right now on this set? Like, my it's, god, yeah, yeah, it, it's a powerful gust it's, it's of a wind. Really cool sure. effect. It looks great. A dark figure pops up, grabbing Ralphie. Ned still wants to pry the crate open. Mike nervously laughing about it. He tells Ned to uh, to stop because Straker uh, would hear, but he wants to do it anyway. Running up the stairs. Uh, 
to the truck to grab some tools, Mike uh, paces around the crate, frightened by a couple of rats. Ned comes back about to pry it open. He tells him to stop because he hears something above them, and he runs up the stairs. Ned hears it as well, running right behind him, blaming it on the rats that they heard. He realizes that he forgot about the padlocks. Mike tells him to just throw them down there and to close the doors. Great. Great. I love that so much. I I was hoping... When, when every time that this happened, like, I always hope that like, oh man, how awesome would have been if just Barlow just went on the town and just went, had a fucking massacre. Like, yeah. because these idiots left the doors completely unlocked and just threw them down in the basement. Fantastic. I mean, in a, in a way, in a way. I mean, yeah, you're not wrong. Definitely not Cro- wrong. Crockett's going to finally meet Barlow in a minute. That's very true. He does so, not locking the basement doors. Meanwhile, Cully watches his wife commit adultery when Crockett comes inside the house. He grabs his shotgun, creeping back toward the window. The Glick brothers, uh, the Glick bros' parents are on the phone with Mark's parents. The brothers were supposed to come home half an hour ago, asking them if asking asking them to ask Mark if anything was said to, to him. Their mom, uh, Marjorie, co- goes out of the back door seeing Danny walking up to her. She te- she calls for her husband, Henry. They run over to him, uh, falling on the ground. They ask where his brother is, but he doesn't know. Yeah, because you fucking left him. That's yeah. why you don't know. Like You, you uh, left him, you little I was kind of wondering what happened to Danny. Like Was he attacked? Because from what we saw, it looked like just Ralph was scooped up. But then I Danny comes in scooped. and he's like all exhausted and like, I don't know. It was just an interesting sequence. I, I guess, I guess Danny had to have been attacked, right? Because like right? later he like gets super sick. Yeah. So and it's before, it's before, you know, the thing that's going to happen in a minute happens. Right. So I don't know. It's interesting. It's super interesting. Henry tells her to get Dr. Norton. The the nosy knucklehead and Mike come back to uh, the cemetery immediately parting ways. Mike calls for his dog. No response or reaction as he continues. Straker pulls up to the house, noticing that the basement door isn't locked and the padlocks are just thrown on the ground. He's nervous, going to his trunk to grab something wrapped in a black tarp. And I assume he's nervous because like he doesn't want Barlow to be upset. I, yeah. I like. I don't know. Like, it, it's just it's interesting that he's nervous because obviously he's Barlow's familiar, right? right. So like, it, it's just interesting that like he was afraid in that moment, which it <laughs> the way that this movie goes, it, it totally seems like Stricker is a lot stronger than Barlow. <laughs> well, and something something that is interesting to me is I think sometimes it's the house itself. Like, there's yeah. a presence within that house that strikes that fear. Cause there's a scene earlier on too, where Stri- Straker like has a moment where he looks uh, like kind of visibly afraid of the house or what's happened yeah. in the house. And he's trying to like get out really quick to leave for a little bit. That's true. And so it makes me think that like, like we were talking about the house really does attract darkness, but right. that darkness also looks back. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah, for, Which- for some reason, that's something that I think about when I look at it. And that's that's such a great thought because that that kind of brings me on to the aspect of this idea of this house being an evil presence and being something that attracts evil. Like this, this was really honed in, and it felt like that this was the blueprint for like the Overlook Hotel. Mm. And I, I have no idea how far The Shining is to Salem's Lot. I know Salem's Lot was written in '76. I'm not sure when uh, The Shining was written, but I think it was around that time as well, though. 
I don't know. He wrote so many fucking books. Who knows? <laughs> All the crates are shattered open, and he places the tarp on the table, opening it up. It is Ralphie lying unconscious on the table. Straker smiles as um um at his successful work, heading upstairs and turning off the lights before leaving. I was curious as to why not turn him, but I assume it was because Barlow was probably asleep for so long, and that that was just going to be like a full course meal for him. And yeah. they weren't going to turn him at all. He was just going to like suck him completely dry, probably. But that's the only thing I can think of. Yeah. Instead, Crockett gets that honor, I guess. Maybe. Because yeah. Crockett never comes back, does he? No. Yeah. So yeah, no, maybe, he just like dies. Maybe that was his first meal. <laughs> yeah, like, maybe. Right. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> now I can start turning people. Because like Danny never shows up again either. Well, actually, correction. Danny does show up for his brother. Yeah. Right. Yeah. In the window. Uh, uh, and. Uh, you mean Ralph? Ralphie, excuse me. Yes, Ralphie. Yeah. Yes, Ralphie Ra- sews up for 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 him in the window. Right. Yeah, Cully sneaks into his house, hearing his wife laughing and whispering to Crockett. He bursts into the room, startling the both of them with his gun drawn. She immediately throws Crockett under the bus, claiming that he broke in <laughs> and tried to rape her. Holy I don't mean to laugh. Fuck. But yeah, <laughs> that's absolutely horrible. But like, just the holy shit. Oh, she How just quickly went, he turned. Drop of a hat. Or she turned, I mean. And and I like I like to think that she didn't necessarily do this because it was a betrayal type of thing. It was just more so the fact that she's a lot more afraid of him than she is of Crockett. Yeah. And I, I think that that's just what the whole concept of that was, is that she's more 100%. afraid of her husband than she is of Crockett. She's like, ah, oh, no, I I'm actually know what my husband's capable of, and I know you're a bitch, so, <laughs> so this is how it's going to be. Crockett shakes his head that he didn't, Cully telling him to shut up and demands him to get out of her bed. He does so, Cully pointing the gun to his head, Bonnie trying to tell him to stop. He yells for her to shut up, Crockett pleading for him not to do anything, knowing that he doesn't want to go to jail. Cully claims that he's, he isn't going to go to jail for protecting his wife from a rapist, clarifying her truth. She screams that this is true. Crockett swearing that she invited him over. She argues that, she, that he, he was... She argues that he was the one who called her. Cully points the gun at her, Crockett trying to convince him not to do this, not to do this over a lie. This was the thing that I thought was really weird about this scene, was just his mental switch of he it seemed like he completely believed her in saying yeah. that it was rape. And then as like literally as soon as Crockett, this guy that he really has nothing to do with says, no, she invited me over. Then he turns like he immediately turns. it shows you yeah. how unhinged he is mentally about this whole situation. Absolutely. And like, he, he's pissed at both of them for sure. But like, I, I think you're absolutely right. Like he, he's just completely unhinged and the way that he reacts is so off the wall with this. So it's it's super yeah. fascinating. She demands Crockett to come inside the living room so they can talk it over. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, telling Bonnie to stay there because he's coming back. While they are walking out, he compliments Crockett's underwear. <laughs> He's like, oh, nice pair, nice pair of shorts. Claiming Where'd that they look those? good on him as he holds the barrel to his chest. <laughs> Out in the living room, Crockett tries to explain the situation, Cully demanding him to grab the barrel. He does so, Cully cocking the gun back, instructing him to hold the barrel to his, his face. Crockett does so, threatening if he moves, the, if he moves the barrel, he's going to kill him 
If, oh, excuse me. Crockett does so, threatening if he if he moves the barrel, he's going to kill him. Screaming for him to hold it steady, maniacally calling on his self control, calling on his self control. He demands him to close his eyes. Crockett does so, Cully pulling the trigger twice, but no bullets. Crockett runs out of the house, stopped by the blackish hand. And I love this because it's just like so seventies and it's so wild, so off the wall. And I love the fact that like he doesn't come back. <laughs> And I'm just happy that, that Crockett finally got to meet Barlow, you know? Yeah. He's been asking finally. about him the whole movie. Exactly. You've been, you've been asking about him. You got to finally meet him. There you go. Are now, you happy now? Going back to the uh, murder angle, I think it would have been really interesting if Barlow would have like torn his head off or something. Oh, that would have been awesome. And like left him somewhere near the house. That would have been great. And then... And then, you know, it's like, oh, you killed him with your shotgun because he was having an affair with your wife sort of thing. I think that would have been an interesting twist there. Uh, I agree. Not to add some fan fiction to, to like the movie, but. I mean, hey, we we never know. We might totally get something like this in uh, the Gary Doberman remake. So it is possible that, that this could happen, which I'm actually quite excited for that remake so uh, i look forward to it i mean atomic monster is one um producing the whole thing which is james wan's company so i assume it's gonna be pretty wild so should be fun um gully comes back inside the room slamming the door hitting bonnie and fucking wow Jesus. Ben and Susan are by the lake. Susan thinking that he was going to blow, blow off their old, their new relationship. He tells her that he, he wasn't going to say anything. She complains about asking too many questions. Ben rebuttals with him not giving enough answers yet again, this whole thing, as they both think, uh, they are talking too much and begin kissing. They're interrupted by cars pulling up. Ben leaving Susan to take a look. They walk over to Crockett in his car without his shirt on and eyes and, um, and, I don't know what I was trying to say. Uh, um, oh, and his eyes closed. Yeah. Uh, he tries to wake up Crockett, but his head slumps, falling on his steering wheel, honking his horn. Danny is asleep in his bed, tossing and turning, his window being enca- encapsulated with fog. Ralphie floats toward the window, smiling, tapping, and scratching on it. Danny wakes up, nervously watching his brother continue to float around the window. He smiles back at Ralphie in a trance, going up to the window to open it, allowing his brother to come inside the house. Ralphie floats closer to him with sharp fangs, protruding from his mouth. Cut to Ben and Susan reporting this, uh, the situation to, to Parkins. I actually love this. I, I love this reveal here because this is the first time you're just like, oh, shit. These motherfuckers yep. are vampires. Like- yep. You finally get the, the reveal that you're dealing with, with vampires 100% for sure. Yeah, and, and I love that reveal. I think that's a really, really fascinating reveal. Ben shares that the, uh, that it was either a car or a truck that drove away. Parkins getting impatient asks which, which was it, but they don't know. Ben points to where they were by the lake. One of his partners tells him to come by the co- come to the car. He pulls out Crockett's uh, things from the car. Parkins heads over... Heads over trying to get the story once again. Ben adds that he thinks someone got out of the car to get to get inside another. Parkins brings up Ralphie's disappearance, asking Ben if he's leaving the town. He tells Parkins that he's not. Parkins telling him not to not to before walking away. Ben takes back Susan. Ben takes Susan back home. Bill commenting on the time. She asks where he's going. He shares that Danny has collapsed and and he's headed to the hospital. She doesn't understand commenting about Ralphie, Danny, and Crockett. Continuing that all of this happens um, since Ben finishes um, since 
she says all this happened since Ben cuts her off to finish since he came there. It's just like, yeah, you're suspect number one. Like, just letting you know. <laughs> yeah. Letting you know that now. Uh, she she knows that he didn't have anything to do with it because he didn't know the, the boys or Crockett. But he shares that he saw the boys rehearsing and that he met Crockett. Just like, cool, you're painting a great light for yourself right now. <laughs> yeah. I did like that he was accepting of the motive, though. Like, he understood yes. why he was uh, being suspected. A suspect. Yeah, absolutely. Which is good. Like, I, I think that's really, really fascinating um, that they have that. Uh, I would have loved for the suspicion to be placed on the actual stranger, I guess, since he technically lived in this town. But right. <laughs> once again, it's just like no one knew who you were. So like, that's fucking weird. Like, mm. And it, it feels like it's on purpose that nobody knew who you were. Yeah. So he reminds her that that he came he came there to rent the Marston house, thinning, uh, thinking that he might have awoken some sort of evil, which I don't I don't think that's necessarily true because you weren't there first. So chill, you know, like, yeah, it, don't beat yourself up. <laughs> it is interesting in the way, though, that maybe he awakened to the house again, though. But, but And do you think that it's because he thought this process of like, this is where I need to go. I need to beeline it to Salem's lot to the Barston's house so I can write this book. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It's really interesting. And and to me, this goes back to Stephen King technically having the shining in all of his books and stories. Like, right. Well, and, and there's this stuff about it too, with the cosmic horror side of things. There's right. always like another layer. Like I'm really interested to go back and read the actual book now, uh, or novella, um, because I really want to know if there's more to that story. Um, in as I'm far curious. as like the layers of, of cosmic horror that he throws into stuff as well. Absolutely. And, and I'm, I'm absolutely curious behind that as well, because it, it feels like with the way that this house is being presented, this is another living being of its own. And I think that is super fascinating and, and very uh, receptive when it comes to this story of awaken evil in and the way that it kind of uh, flows. Mm -hmm. um, so I find that super fascinating. Marjorie and Henry are in the waiting room, springing up when they see Bill. They wonder how Danny is, Bill asking if he's had an asthma attack. They tell him no. Henry mentions that his file is with Dr. Goldring. Bill um, asks if he has a history of, of uh, rheumatic fever. He also hasn't. Henry calling him healthy. Bill continues asking questions of his medical history, wanting to keep him there for more tests. Marjorie asks what type of test, but they don't know yet. Cut to Mike looking for Faithful, asking a, ground, a groundkeeper if he's seen his dog, but he hasn't. The only black dude in the town. Mind you, <laughs> right? Like, I know. It's like, you only see him for like half a second, right? And he's hard at work. Like <laughs> he continues looking, finding his dog killed. Ben is is uh, part of the search for Ralphie. Um, I actually do like the fact that Mike doesn't assume that the other groundskeeper like killed his dog, though. That's nice. Yeah, that's because like one hundred percent. 
when I saw that, I was like, oh, shit, he about to blame the fucking black dude. Here we go. <laughs> ben is part of is part of a search with, uh, for Ralphie, finding a piece of clothing on a branch. Parkins yelling for him not to touch that, calling for an envelope. Ben uh, comments that Straker also wears a black suit. Cut to Straker opening up boxes. Parkins comes inside the shop. Straker greeting him. Parkins comments about them um, being almost ready uh, to open, but Straker tells him not quite yet, but soon. He asks Straker if everything is everything is in. Straker commenting everything important has made it. He offers he offers Parkins a beverage. He quickly denies. Parkins asks if Barlow has made it has made it yet. Straker <laughs> excuses that he's in New York and that he may go to Europe on a on a buying trip. Parkins wonders if he'll be opening uh if he'll be opening without him. Straker continues entertaining the conversation. Parkins asking for Barlow's first name. Straker asks if if. This is official question. Parkins claiming that he's just curious. Taking a seat, Straker answers that Barlow's full name is Kurt. Kurt Barlow. And that they've been working together since London and Hamburg. Claiming that um, this is their retirement, asking Parkins if he believes that uh, he can make a reputation for him, for themselves from there to New England. Parkins answers the, um, that any um, that anything is possible, changing the question about the house. And I actually love this question when he asks him this, if we can make this reputation, because he's like, I'm trying to infect and inhabit all mm-hmm. these people to this town. Yeah, I like I Look like this that. idea that they maybe have like been creating cells all around the world for yeah. like almost a hundred years or I guess fifty years. Right. Um, and now this is where they're gonna settle. So yeah. this is where they're finally going to like just create the nest for these. And it's two. great. Yeah, it's great. Really I, cool. I love that. Um, and it makes me kind of want to rewatch Castle Rock because technically Castle Rock is set in Jerusalem's lot. So like, I, I kind of want to rewatch Castle Rock because I, I want to think of this in the context of Salem's lot being a place of a, a nesting ground of vampires. So super interesting. Shout out to Mark Bernardin who worked on that show. Oh yeah, shouts out. Straker um, claims that he, it needs it needs work, but they hold, they have time. Parkins asks if he's bothered by the local kids. Straker scratches his neck as he comments that there are, that uh, there have been no children. Parkins sharing that they misplaced one, thinking that they may not uh, find him alive. And I do like the fact that there are like no kids in this whole fucking movie, pretty much, except yeah. when they're at school. Yeah. <laughs> Straker, all four of them. All four of them, exactly. <laughs> Sugar thinks it is a shame. Um, playing along uh, to see if if there is anything he can do to help. He asks, um, as Perkins as Parkins uh, heads for the door, he asks for Straker's black suits. He understands, letting Parkins know that he has two black suits back at the house, wondering if, he, if he's breaking any rules by wearing them. Parkins asks to see the suits, Straker letting him know that he'll bring them down uh, tomorrow because they need to be cleaned, wondering the reason why. He doesn't share it with Straker, then leaves as they have a macho contest on the word chow. <laughs> <laughs> Got to Parkins on the phone, letting someone know that Ralphie is missing and not kidnapped. He continues that he wants to check out Ben Straker and Barlow. Bill is is speaking with Ben um, about 
how he doesn't how he doesn't see the connection between Crockett's death and the Marston house. Ben comments that he was the one who want, who rented the house uh, strictly to them. Bill's rebuttal is that uh, he died of a heart attack. Ben wonders if he could have if this could have happened in, at the Marston house and him being taken to the lake shortly afterwards. Speaking from the local gossip, Bill claims that uh, it is leaning in a different direction. Ben brings up the Glick brothers. Bill doesn't doesn't know, thinking that. That, uh, thinking that can be something else. He asks what's wrong with Danny, Bill wanting him to keep keep it to himself, thinking that it could be uh, pernicious anemia. Bill uh, Ben can, doesn't understand how that is possible since it only happened in one night. Susan comes into the room asking Ben if he's ready. He is go, uh, getting his coat as Susan shares that, uh, that they are going to see a movie. Bill calls Ben once more. He tells Ben that everyone knows that... Uh, that uh, they were at the lake uh, the night prior. He continues that he seems like a nice person and he seems to respect his daughter. He asks if um, if he could have been more discreet. Ben nods. And it's just like, that's an interesting statement. Yeah, I think it's the, the whole small town gossip thing. Yeah. I, at first I was like, wait, do you think that they did something up at the lake? Or are you just right. pissed off that your your daughter is like hanging out with this guy and there's no promise of marriage yet? Like, right. <laughs> and it's yeah. a small town or whatever. And it feels like that's what it is, right? Like it feels like it, it's it's this whole small town vibes is just like, like, hey, you're making me look bad in front of all these people that we know. It's right. just like, don't worry. He's not even really from here. Meanwhile, <laughs> Danny is in the hospital uh, room asleep, the window covering with fog yet again. He awakens, seeing Ralphie floating in the window yet again. Danny sits up, watching his brother scratch the window, this time a bit more sinister. He gets up from the bed, pulling the IV, crashing it to the ground. Um, And I love this because yes. it is so squirmish, the way it just rips out of his arm. Yep. And then just crashes to the ground because oh, it's glass instead of the plastic God. bags of today. Yeah. Yeah. Such Fucking a cool amazing. thing. Such an amazing sight. And the way you know, that he's floating in the window too is really cool. Oh, absolutely. The way this is even shot is fucking yeah. beautiful. Like it, it's really, really beautiful the way this is shot. I don't know who the cinematographer was who worked on this, but um, bravo to them because God yeah, the damn. lighting and, and every setup for the shots, it just looked great. Everything yes. about that stuff looks great. Just looks really, really good, really on point, and it, it it's nice. It's just it's yeah. a, it's a nice thing to see in this particular movie. He opens the windows, moving back, um, Ralphie, um, and I actually had something here. Is it just me, or does it feel like someone is standing in the reflection behind Danny? And you, I don't know if you remember it. But it, hmm. it it looks like someone is standing right behind him in the reflection. But it, it's it's interesting. It's I, w- interesting. I wonder if that's a, a like a mistake, like Maybe. The, because the cameraman is right there, right. So I wonder if that's just him getting caught in the the scene, and you just happen to notice it. Yeah, it, it's possible. It's definitely huh. possible. Ralphie floats into the room, floating above his brother for a moment, then plunging his fangs very softly into his neck. It's a nice, <laughs> delicate plunge. It's not like a like a speed. It's like a huh. <laughs> yeah, it's it's really great. It's it's a way to add like that mystical essence to the vampire yes. bite without it being like bloody and gory. Right. Absolutely. And it. it, it the reason why I like it too is because they are treating them very 
delicately. Like they, 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 they're not wanting to have these other vampires turn in a way to where they're mangled because right. they were like ravaged pretty much by bite marks. Um, they, they are doing this in a very, they're treating it like a delicate piece of cake. I also like how there's the entire, even though they never talk about it, it's not in your face like Lost Boys, where they're right. like, the Frog Brothers are breaking down all the rules for you. Yeah. All the rules are just there. So yeah. like Danny has to invite Ralph in and he's getting, uh, another reason I think that the bite is so soft is because he's under that spell. He's yes. in, under the influence because he looked into his brother's eyes, which we'll get into here in a bit. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, he looked into his Ralph's eyes, so he got tranced. And then he, that was how he was able to convince him to open it and just kind of sw- softly and mystically kind of just take him. Absolutely. Cut to Straker leaving the, leaving the house with the suits, placing them in the back seat at the hospital, a nurse coming to Danny's room discovering him dead. She screams, dropping the tray of medicine. Straker continues driving to the shop with a slight smirk of smile on his face. He takes out the suits, walking across the street. He goes inside Parkins' office. Uh, placing his suits down on the chair, asking when he can have them back. Parkins uh, comments in a couple of days, Straker telling him no, mo- no more than that. He claims that he'll try, Straker reminding him that he doesn't have to do this. He asks if he's under sp- some suspicion. Parkins leans back, telling him that he is. Straker smiles, pointing his fingers on the disappearance of Ralphie because he's a stranger, adding that he's a little odd. Parkins sh- um, shrugs that he uh, knows he knows how they are, um, or he knows how they are there. Strager uh, sits down, telling him that they that they aren't any different from a small town, from small towns all over. He asks if he's being charged. He isn't, but Parkins wants him to stay around. Straker intends to, then brings back up the suits, thinking that the crime lab will have them, but he tells him FBI will have them instead. Straker nods, getting up um, that he wants his suits back in excellent condition, adding that he also wants them to be dry cleaned. <laughs> fucking baller yeah definitely <laughs> he, he bids his farewell leaving out of the office parkins grabs the piece of cloth searching for the uh, searching for any rips on the on the suit but he can't find any cully is driving down the, the street with a bl- with a black eyed bonnie next to him and this is the last time we see it but yep. i love the continuity here and i assume this is the last time we see them because i assume they're leaving i assume yeah. they're like leaving town and like Maybe this is quote unquote his way of wanting to make up. It's just like let's get out of town for a few days and sure. be together or something. I think there's a few different things for it. I think that he wants to get away from the town because that's where his wife, you know, cheated on him. So if they move away from that, maybe she'll like loosen up and forget about it and just focus right. on him. I think that yeah, getting away for a few days. I think that it could be he doesn't want to be suspected for the murder, so he's trying to get away as soon as possible before his wife can like let it slip that, you know, something right. happened. Yeah. Uh, any any of those things. Yeah, no, it, it, it's there's a lot of motives for him to leave. Like it, yeah. it's pretty great, which I love how no one suspects him. Like for yeah. for what well, happened to him, especially because of how closely his wife worked with Crockett. Right. <laughs> like, and on top of that, like that was part of the gossip of the town. 
Yeah. And yet nothing. But okay. Straker watches as they pass by, then heads inside the shop, placing a sign that says opening soon. Cut to Ben looking at, out at the Marston house from his room. He meets with Susan for lunch at, at a diner. Susan brings up the, uh, that her father has asked him to be discreet and that he also told her, um, and that he also told her to do, to show her feelings. She tells him that she got a phone call for a job interview in Boston and that she saw, and that they saw her portfolio. He's not entirely stoked about her leaving, but he, sh- but she shares that it's only for a couple of days. Ben asks when she leaves and it is tomorrow after class. She asks if, if he can come with her. Um, he sighs that he wants to stay for Danny's funeral tomorrow. Um, and I, it's interesting because like we know the real reason why he can't leave, but yeah. Yeah. She wonders why since he hasn't that since he wasn't involved, Ben telling him that he just needs to be there, adding that he wishes that she wasn't going. She agrees, but knows that he, uh she has to. And it's it's interesting. It's just like, my dude, you've been there for what? We can assume that you've been there for like a week. Right? Maybe a yeah, few that days. Sounds right. Sounds like right. maybe I mean, like a yeah, I would say maybe like five days. Right. And you're you're just already just like, oh, I don't want you to go. And <laughs> just like like she's trying to get a job, like and have a future. I mean, this she is definitely you. movie relationship for sure. Oh, hands down. <laughs> she reminds him that uh it's only an interview and that she wouldn't have the job um until the end of June. So that gives us context that we're in the month of June. He claims that he'll do. Um, he'll claims that they'll have to do Danny's funeral. The um, the whole town pulling up. Uh, the Screw priest- Ralph though. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Just, no one gives a fuck about Ralphie. Uh, the priest, the priest prays over the casket. Mark looking over at Ben. Mark uh, looking away when Ben notices. The priest continues. Marjorie fainting and others tending to her. Ben looks up at the sky, noticing the clouds looming over the grounds. All the cars leave the cemetery. Ben, um, Ben, the last to leave and turning the opposite direction. I don't know if you noticed this, but cemetery is actually spelled wrong when they're leaving on the side. Oh no, I didn't. But that is the real sign to that cemetery. Just dressed up. Uh, really? It usually says Ferndale cemetery. Oh, that's so funny, but it's spelled wrong here. <laughs> that's funny. I didn't notice that. Yeah. It's spelled, um, C E M E T A A R R Y. Oh no, it's common misspelling too. <laughs> Mike grabs a shovel to fill in the grave of Danny. As he, as he's, um, doing so, his surroundings are getting extremely windy. Meanwhile, Ben is driving with Jason. He asks Ben if he has plans for tonight. He tells Jason that Susan is going to Boston. Jason's um Jason heard Ben hoping that she gets the job. He doesn't believe that um that it, he doesn't believe that is what he actually wants. Ben agreeing that he doesn't he doesn't but he it's how he feels. Or uh, he probably should have said it's how he should feel. Yeah. <laughs> Mike continues filling filling the hole, the wind becoming more violent as he calls for the groundskeeper royal. He uh continues filling the hole, noticing something inside. Moving to the other side to get a better glimpse, standing at the foot of the plot, he walks closer, jumping jumping on top of Danny's casket. I love this because the trance this shows you how strong their trance is. Yeah. Fucking genius. Yeah, even even without seeing it, he just feels that presence all of a sudden. Absolutely. Absolutely. He opens it. Danny's glowing yellow eyes peering directly at Mike. The earth rumbling around him. Danny pops pops up right in his face, hissing, then taking a bite from his neck. 
Got that 70s close-up. So cool. So fucking good. I love it. I love it. And that is the end of part one, everybody. Definitely... Let's let's keep the theories going. Obviously, you can watch this very well in advance, but let's just keep the conversation going about this. And like I said, we're not going to be doing any uh, type of uh, movie facts until part two, which will be available to you next uh, the following week. But definitely keep the conversation going about this particular section of this film. No uh, future spoilers or anything like that, but let's definitely keep the conversation going over on Twitter at nightlight underscore pot. That's night with a K. But if you are completely impatient, you, and I completely understand the whole thing will tech is technically available right now on patreon.com forward slash good night live. That is night with a K. And you can uh, sign up for our Weeping Prince um, tier to get access to the whole thing. Part one and part two is available now with this episode. So if you are eager beavers, I completely understand. There's nothing wrong with that because I don't blame you. But you do have access to it now if you wanted to gain access to that. But um, before we conclude part one, I do want to uh, ask a couple more things Um to kind of go over of what we just talked about a little bit here, uh, just to kind of solidify some things. Um, at this point in time, we're starting to see like more and more people obviously get demolished. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so with this town changing and, and these people kind of, I guess, forming into vampires, uh, what do you think the end result is for, for this league of vampires? I, I don't honestly, like I said earlier, I feel like this is going to be their nest. Like they're going to okay. try and create the people that live there now into vampires. And then I would assume try and bring in familiars to like run the town during the day. Right. That way it seems like a completely normal town. And then from there, if it's anything like the real town, it's a huge tourist destination because of all the right. like Victorian buildings and stuff. So I imagine like people go there all the time. So maybe they pick off the stragglers that they feel like maybe won't be missed. So that's their way of like kind of sustaining themselves in this weird offshoot. Cause you know, a couple people go missing up in, uh, up in the, hills of Maine, who's going to care, you know? Right. Absolutely. And because I was very curious about that, because I, I, I was wondering like, okay, well, like what, what is their, what is their game plan here? Like, what are they trying to achieve? Um, when they're all vampires, it's just like, how are you going to eat? Like, you know, like, are you going to leave? Are you going to like go hunt in these packs or like, what are you going to do? Um, cause like very much 30 days of night feels like this was the type of concept that it was going for just a more mm-hmm. brutal concept in Alaska, yeah. which is genius. Like I, I think 30 days of night is absolutely genius, but yeah, super fun. But like it is fun. It's a lot of fun, but, uh, but yeah, I, I mean, that was my, my main thing that I wanted to uh, kind of conclude us with, but Philip, before you um, officially go and you, you, you are going to be in part two as well, but uh, before you officially go, uh, where can people find you on Twitter so that they can actually check out your stuff? Cause Philip, um, actually does a lot of cool shit too. He interviews a lot of really cool people. I was actually uh, lucky enough to be on his show out of our league. Um, and he interviews a lot of cool people, a lot of famous people as well, which is pretty cool in both the uh, movie industry and video game industry. So that, that, that's pretty cool. So where, where can people uh, find you? 
Yeah, you can find me uh, at Phil with two L's, J Woodward on Twitter. Uh, you can find our interviews for Out of Our League on pretty much most podcast services. Uh, it's Simply Sassy Presents Out of Our League. Um, and you can go to youtube.com slash simply sassy vids to find uh, the YouTube version or video version, VOD version of uh, that content. We are available on most podcast services now, so it should be pretty easy to find us. But yes, yeah, we've got some really cool interviews uh, with people. Uh, we've got one coming up with um, uh, some, some really fun people from the journalism side of video games here pretty soon. I can't quite reveal who they are, so as much as I'd like to. I almost did, and I was like, oh, no. I no worries. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no worries. Not a problem. I mean, we'll definitely be looking forward to those for sure. And, and, and once again, Philip, thank you for joining me in this. This has been a lot of fun for sure. But this was Nightlight, a horror movie podcast. I was one of your hosts, Prince, also known as Head Knight. And alongside we had Philip. Thank you once again, our ghoulish knight. Our efforts to get the show out is not enough. We need your help to spread us out to more ghoulish nights ready us with five stars is very helpful but we would love for you to recommend this podcast to someone who would actually enjoy it you can further support the show over on patreon.com slash goodnightlife that's not what they would Okay. Yeah. <laughs> By pledging on Patreon, you have access to the show ad-free and as early as Monday with a post-show. If you don't have any bucks to toss, don't worry. An episode is released every Friday on most podcast services around the world. Remember, everybody, don't forget your nightlight.